And if you'd like to grab a Bible, we are continuing our look through 1 John. And we are on chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. And if you are looking at the Bible underneath the chairs, it is page 1160. So 1 John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So, Father, we ask that as we look at this passage this evening, we ask that you would, you would be teaching us, that you would reveal your Holy Spirit to us, that we would be open to what you have to say to us this evening. Amen. So as has already been mentioned, um, today is Pentecost. And so uh, Pentecost is where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it's also the the birthday of the church, hence said birthday cake. Um, And so this evening, as we continue our look through 1 John, it is appropriate, therefore, that there is an emphasis upon the Spirit in our reading. I'm not sure whether that was planned, but if it wasn't, then it's turned out very well. But of course, we're not looking at the Holy Spirit in quite the same way as we were looking at it this morning. So specifically this evening, the passage is about testing the spirits, not just the Holy Spirit. It's about testing between different kinds of spirits. And if I'm really honest, it's not the easiest passage in the world to get a sermon out of, but we'll see how we do. Prophets played a really significant role in the, the very early church. And so what happened was that they were speaking directly for God and they were providing this very early direction of the church as it was just beginning to birth. But then as time went on, uh, gradually there was more of a, an official structure that, that happened as the, the church progressed and it needed this. So you had things like elders and, and deacons and they replaced these early charismatic leaders of the church. And the community that John is writing to has not yet got this developed official structure within the church. It hasn't got any kind of of leadership. And so this has led to all sorts of different problems that we have already seen in the letter and then we'll probably continue to see as the weeks go on. And what John does is that he appeals to his authority as one who represents the tradition of the church as opposed to just people who were going off in any kind of which way direction, depending on what kind of spirit they were listening to, what their their prophecy was. And so here you have this example of this problem that plagues 
at every church in every generation. And it's this. It is that tension between the the prophetic voices within the church and the tradition of the church. The tension between the prophetic voices and the tradition of the church. Now, if you were to take an overview of, of the church, I mean, you could go back much further than this, but if you, say, look at the church and how it's developed over, say, the last 50, 100 years, something like that, you would see that the church in this way goes full circle. So since the Reformation, since the Church of England um, was formed and since it has always been the established church in the lands and with the Church of England comes all the structures and hierarchy that you have within that um, and there's this movement of people who actually say, well, I don't like your hierarchy and your structures. I don't really like what your, your bishops and all that kind of stuff says and, and what we can and cannot do. They think that it's far too restrictive and um, they would disagree with some of their opinions about certain things. And within that, I would probably say that there's some things that I would agree with, but then um, these people didn't just kind of stay within the church and say, well, hold on, what about this issue or this issue or can we do this new thing over here? Instead, they had their complaints and they didn't stay within the church. They broke away from the church. And they broke away and there was a small group of people that would say meet in homes, hence the name house churches that people talked about. And then they began to have their own buildings and so they became known as free churches, free because they were free from the established churches. Some people call them uh, non-conformist churches, churches that do not conform to the establishment. And so what happened was initially that these kind of churches had no structure, they had no kind of hierarchy. They would say that they, they were being guided and led purely by the Holy Spirit. And then the years go on and then problems come in or they need to work out how they're going to organize themselves. And so they have to create some sort of structure, some sort of hierarchy, and then some sort of church tradition begins to develop. And then those who didn't agree with this new structure and hierarchy would say, actually, we want to do this thing over here. So they would break away and start their own church. And so it would go on and on. And you always have those who want to do a genuine, fresh, uh, new thing that they genuinely believe that God is calling them to do. But for whatever reason, perhaps the particular structures, the particular hierarchy within that church doesn't allow it. And this, what quite often happens is this new thing that they want to do that starts off as edgy, it starts off as original, soon needs structures to make it last. And so this cycle repeats itself. It goes around and around. And so within this community that John is writing to, you have this tension between people who are kind of going off in every which way direction because this so-called prophet has spoken with sticking to the boundaries that have already been established by the early church leaders. And John tells those that he is writing to, to not just take everything that the so-called prophets are telling you simply at face value. So verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Now, according to this contemporary worldview of the first century, the world was populated by spirits and by angels and by unclean spirits and demons and all that kind of stuff. And the verb to test is drawn from the, uh, the testing of coins to distinguish between those that are genuine and those that are counterfeit. So there is the spirit that you should listen to, the Holy Spirit, and the spirits that you should ignore. There's two spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. But if we listen to the prophetic voices, what do you do? How do you distinguish between what is a true prophet and then what is a false prophet? And that's exactly the question that John is addressing here. And John says, John says, test the spirits, test the spirits, because there were many false voices. So the next question becomes, well, how do you test? If you have to test, how do you test? Verse 2 and 3, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. And then verse 5. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. So there are two tests that John says that you can do. The first test is you can look at the content of their message, and the, the second test is their reception by the world. So the content of their message and the reception by the world. Those who confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh are from God. Those who do not are from the Antichrist. That seems fairly straightforward. Those who listen to the community belong to God. Those who who listen to its opponents belong to the world. Or more specifically, are the religious leaders affirming the historic confessions of the church or are they advocating some sort of departure away from the church doctrines? Now, the people that John is writing to are in danger of being at best thoroughly confused and at worst being blown right off course by all these different ideas, different claims, different would-be prophets. So what do you do in this church context where you have all these different voices saying that they have heard from God? Some are going to be genuine, some are not going to be genuine. And that is what John is talking about here. And the problem about false prophets is that actually they're really hard to tell. How do you distinguish? Because actually they look quite similar to a genuine prophet. Or at least they do at first sight. They seem devout. They seem reasonable. They claim to have a word from God. So who on earth are we to disagree with these prophets who tell us that they are all these things? Now John knows Jesus warned, and we too need to learn all over again, that not everybody who claims to be a prophet is, in fact, a prophet. The answer is that you need to listen carefully, you need to sift, and you need to weigh exactly what you hear. Because some people are unlikely to come out with some kind of direct curse, direct kind of abusive teaching, 
that is outwardly ridiculous, because of course, why that would completely give the game away. And so the first test that John says is the content of their message. You see, it's not enough to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. In this context, both the affirmation that Jesus was the Christ and the affirmation that the Christ came in flesh are essential. Holding one without the other is not only insufficient, but in this context, it exposes you as a false prophet. Now, some were clearly affirming the divinity of Jesus, but there were also some that uh, denied or they diminished the significance of the humanity of Jesus. And what John is saying that actually we need both of these things together. Now, we can't be sure because of reading it lots of years later, but there were so many religious and political movements, but to reject uh, that Jesus had come in the flesh looks suspiciously like one branch of what came to be known as Gnosticism. Now, if you were here, how many weeks ago was it? Four or five weeks ago or something, Tessa was talking about Gnosticism, so you may have heard a little bit of this before, uh, but a kind of a brief recap. So what is Gnosticism? It's a kind of religion that specialised in secret knowledge, that thought that by gaining this secret knowledge they may uh, entirely escape from this physical world and enter this kind of world of pure spirits. And the thing about Gnosticism, by just emphasising the kind of the spiritual reality, is that at first it can sound quite a lot like Christianity, or at least it can do for a while. And so for Gnostics, it was out of the question that Jesus, the Messiah, would have come in the flesh. Because surely the Messiah who is from God would be this complete spiritual being. He couldn't have ever compromised his um, spiritual identity by having anything to do with the flesh. This, This dirty, this physical stuff as they saw it, that needed to eat and drink, to urinate, to sleep, and heaven forbid, even to die. And when they talked about Jesus, it was only someone who seemed to be human, like the rest of us, not somebody who actually was human. And so they made up stories about how he didn't really die because he hadn't really been human to start with. Jesus instead was this completely spiritual being who came to reveal to others that they too were spiritual and by following his way they could escape this world altogether. But for John, agreeing that Jesus, the Messiah, came in the flesh is a crucial test that is not um, an extra bit that you add on to the Christian message. And so as John saw it, this was vital, this was a central point. So as we read in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and lived among us. Now this idea remains a huge claim for us today, this keeping together of Jesus as spirit and Jesus as this physical body. But it is a central idea and it's a non-negotiable idea of John. Now you may be thinking, what on earth does any of this have to do with me right now in the 21st century? When I was reading it, that's what I thought too. But I've never been in a church that has any Gnostics. 
I can't imagine that you have ever been in a church that has any Gnostics. But here is something I read. Um, This is by Tom Wright in his book, The Challenge of Jesus. And he says this. Gnosticism, in one or other of its forms, has been making a huge comeback in our own day. Sometimes this has been explicit, as for instance in the New Age movements and similar spiritualities that encourage people to discover who they really are. Just as often, though, Gnosticism of a different sort has been on offer within would-be mainstream traditional orthodoxy, as many Christians have embraced a Jesus who only seemed to be human, have read a Bible which only seemed to have human authors, have looked for a salvation in which God's created order became quite irrelevant, a salvation thought of in almost entirely dualist fashion. What does that mean? In other words... With New Age spirituality, you have a very definite distinction between the physical body and your spiritual kind of being, if you like. This bit that kind of shows you your kind of real, true essence of who you are, and you need to get in touch with your spiritual reality and just ignore all of your physical reality. But with Christianity, I guess none of us are going to be New Agey types here, but with Christianity, you have quite often people who act as if uh, Jesus, as if the Bible and our world are these completely spiritual places. And this idea of the human Jesus, this idea of human authors being involved in writing the Bible, or the idea of our physical world are completely irrelevant. Because what really matters, what's really at the heart of it, what's really at the heart of Christianity is all that spiritual stuff. And all that physical stuff we can just leave to one side. But of course what John is saying is that we need to make sure that that we are not falling into the same trap that all these people fell into. That that our physical world, the physical Jesus, really matters. Why? Because it shows us that, that what we have here, our lives, the creation, these sorts of things really matter. They are really important. It's not just a case of, you know, floating off to some other world. Actually, this world matters. Our reality here matters. So our second test is their reception by the world. The world receives those who belong to it, just as the children of God receive God's word. What John does is he creates this stark contrast. He creates a stark contrast between the Antichrist and Christ, between the spirit of deception and the spirit of truth between the children of the devil and the children of God between the world and the church between the defectors who went out from the church into the world and those who are faithful to John's teaching those who are still in the church you see John doesn't seem to have any kind of middle ground John does not allow for any kind of compromise not that there's any kind of battle going on in the sense that there is no equal between God and all these other things. There is no sense of a kind of a balancing of scales because God always wins. Now people who go with the grain of popular opinion will always find it easy to poke fun at any kind of genuine Christian belief. You would only need to read the comment section on a a newspaper article online 
that's talking about a Christian point of view or to look at the comments on a, a YouTube video of a, a Christian worship song, you would soon see people saying things like, I don't trust anybody who believes in the tooth fairies. That's the kind of wonderful things that people write on the internet. But sometimes all a Christian can do when they're faced with people who make these kind of comments is to cling to the basic statement that the meaning of, of the word God is actually defined in relation to the Jesus who we believe came from this God and became flesh, became reality in our midst. And if we take away that reality of Jesus coming and living among us and being with us, we just do not know who God is anymore. And so that's why John says in verse 6 that we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So John's letter is about holding on to the true God and the way that we know the true God is through Jesus. And if the true God is indeed the source of our life, then you have already won the victory, John says to his readers. Verse 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It may not look like that, it may not feel like that, but when that message is spoken, the spirit of truth is at work. So what does all this have to do with us today? What, what does this all have to do with people as the 21st century? What does it have to do with us here at St. Barnabas? We're not interested in all of these conflicts. Probably in this church we would defer to the leadership if anybody said anything that, that was maybe a bit wacky. We are not in John's church. Well, I think what it means is this. It would be very easy to avoid all prophetic voices altogether. Because surely, you know, if, you, if you stop listening to all of these prophetic voices that might come out, that would get rid of the problem altogether, and we can just stick to what the church has said for the last 2,000 years. But I think this is the important thing for this evening, is that the prophetic voices and church tradition are not in competition. Prophetic voices and church tradition are not in competition because as a church we long for the Spirit to speak. We, we long for the Spirit to keep us moving in the right direction, to always be directed by God. But what church tradition does is it's a guard against any new ideas taking us off in the wrong direction. But of course, church tradition can also get stuck in a rut where you can always be looking to the past, always um, looking to what's already gone before and forgetting to ask God, well, hold on, what are you saying to us now? What are you saying to us today? What are you saying to us? Where should we be moving? Where should we be going? And when tradition and uh, the prophetic voice work together in harmony, it hugely increases the possibilities and the potential of the church and that's what we're looking for. That's how we want to flourish. So we need to always be asking, if God is speaking to us, we need to always be asking God, we should always be listening to what he is saying to us. We should never stop listening. 
We should never stop asking for him to speak to us. Because to think that we don't need to hear God's voice anymore is just as bad as going with whatever new voices are coming at us. Now, down the years, the church has has gone too much in one direction and it's gone too much in the other direction. Too much towards the prophetic voice and not enough towards tradition. Too much towards the tradition and not enough towards the prophetic voice. But I think the question for us this evening is, what does it look like for the church's tradition to be influenced by the prophetic voice? And I think the answer is, at least one answer is, it means that the church takes more risks. It means the church takes more risks. And what does it look like if the prophetic voice is guarded and weighed by church tradition? It means that completely crazy ideas are kept in check. And there's always going to be this tension between the two extremes, between the prophetic voice and between the tradition. But if we want our church to be more influenced by one or the other, if we think that we've gone too much in one direction and we need to come back and and be balanced by the other, I think the question for us is, well, if that's our vision, if that's our goal, how are we personally influenced by both of those things? How are we influenced by both of those things? And then if we think, well, hold on, we need to be more, say, prophetic, more moving in this direction, or maybe we've gone too wacky, how are we displaying that in our own life? Before we talk about church, how are we being impacted and influenced by those things? How are we individually and how are we corporately being formed by both the prophetic and by the history and the tradition of the church? Because if we long to see the church move in a particular direction, because we too need to be bold enough ourselves to step out into that particular direction. But we also need to know that what we do or what we say, if we do step out more in the prophetic direction, is that it will be tested. But the worst thing I think that we can do is to not try, is to not listen to the voice of God. Just because there's stories like this in the Bible doesn't mean that we should not actually still listen to God and and step out in those um, prophetic giftings. So I think that all comes to say at the end is if we are to hold these two things together, if we are to hold together the, the prophetic and the, uh, the tradition of the church, are we bold enough to step out when we think that we've gone too much in one direction or in the other? And so if we are too stuck in our traditional ways, are we bold enough to say, actually, I'm going to speak out, I'm going to listen to the voice of God, and I'm going to say, this is what I think God is saying. Or are we bold enough to say, actually, I'm not sure we've quite got this right, and we need to get back to the tradition of the church. Are we bold? Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. <laughs> Amen.